Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. With us now is, without question, the funniest guy on the program at this moment. He warms up crowds for The Daily Show and uh, The Colbert Report, even though that just went away. He was the guy that did that. He's been on Cash Cab, Newlywed Games, Saturday Night Live. What would you do? I could go on and on. We'll get to it. Take your time. We'll get to it. Uh, his new album, the Unintentionally White album, was just released, and you can get it on iTunes for under $10. He's here with us now, the one, the only, Kevin Bartini. Hey, Tom, how you doing? If you're a George Carlin fan, 121st Street in, in Morningside Heights, that's your, that's your Abbey Road, you know? Right. And, and I, I was saying to him how strange it is that this legendary figure was from there and, and really put that area on the map, and they've done nothing to memorialize him. There's there wasn't a there was no gold plaque on the building. There there was no street sign. There was no, you know, no deli had a George Carlin sandwich. There was nothing. You would never know he had ever been there. And I just said, uh we talked about it for a second. I just kind of said offhand. I was like, you know, I said one of those things, boy, somebody really needs to get on that. Somebody really needs to get the city to, you know, to, to hang a street sign and name that George Carlin way, not knowing what would go into it. And uh, my buddy was just like, well, well, you should be that guy. Why don't you do it? And it just, it was just like, you know, yeah, all right, why don't I do it? When you are funny mm-hmm. and you're young, you know you're funny. I mean, that's, yeah. that's your thing at school every day is to be funny and people yeah. are laughing at you. So there's no question in your mind uh that you're that you're funny and unlike all those other things you mentioned there might be a a chess club or a comic book club or a thing Mm. or a structure for that you know but when you're funny when you're that funny guy there's nothing until you get like into high school or college and actually get to maybe start performing there's no comedy school or here's what you do were you the class clown were you when did the funny start yeah, I was a class clown. This is I, this the this is the thing where because I'm a comedian. When I say this, I always I'm always wary that it makes me sound like a dick. I was literally the funniest kid from you know day one. I was uh, you know kindergarten, whatever preschool. I was always the funniest kid. And it always when you're a comedian, you say you know I don't know. People don't want to hear that. It's like a model saying, "Oh no, I was born beautiful." I just was. I was the funniest kid. And my father's very funny. It's just. It was in my genes, um, you know, or, or the other annoying thing that people do, oh, you're a comedian. Well, you need to come to my office. God, you'll get so much material. <laughs> I would, I, the urge to push you in front of a city bus is so strong when somebody <laughs> tells me that. Cause then you have to fake for like two minutes. Like you're entertained by the antics of Bob from accounting as they retell it to you. Uh-huh. Oh that's, boy. That's torturous too. Like my first year or two in the city, I worked the door at Stand Up New York, which which meant I, um, it was basically like an internship. I think they paid me fifteen dollars for a shift on a weeknight, and maybe twenty five or forty dollars on the weekend. And you know, you'd be there from about five o'clock at night till probably midnight, one in the morning. Um, you're tearing tickets, delivering waffle fries. You're you're lighting the red light to tell comics to get off, and you're making sure the next comic is there to go on. And if the toilet downstairs got got messed up, you were the one going down with a plunger. Um, and your pay was, you know, fifteen dollars, a couple slices of pizza, 
and a couple of spots on the show. But for me, the real pay was getting to watch night in and night out at a professional club in the city, how the pros work and, and really experiencing how a Jim Gaffigan would come in with a bit and would work it out and edit it over the course of a week or a month. So, you know, I, I got to learn the process and, and that. Um, for, for those people who have not been to the taping of a, a television program, I don't yeah. think they're aware that way back into the 70s, for crying out loud, even before that, there were people that would come out and warm up these crowds who, and I, I remember when I, I, the first time I went to the Letterman show, I left the show and went, you know, I'd have paid to see Bill Wendell just warm me up for another half an hour or whatever. I mean, uh, th- that is, number one, very important to the show yep. and and a big deal that it, it's, it's. Uh, can you talk about the, the uh, practice, yeah, sure. practice of doing that? Because sure. you're doing something really important. You're doing something really for a giant TV show, but yet you, you don't necessarily have the notoriety that goes along with it. Right. Yeah. It, audience warm up, something that goes back, even beyond the seventies, as as long as there is, I mean, it goes back. I know that that uh, Ed Sullivan had one, and I'm I'm sure I'm sure Martin and Lewis and Milton Berle had some sort of a warm up too. Basically, as any time you watch a television show that has a live studio audience, you can guarantee be guaranteed that before the cameras roll, and oftentimes during the commercial breaks, there is a person out in front of that audience performing and entertaining and getting, excuse me, getting them warmed up. Right. Now you talked earlier about not liking people, which brings up hecklers and just go just your thoughts on hecklers. But if you're a heckler in my audience who is malignant, that's exactly what I'm going to hit you with first. I'm going to try my best to humiliate you, to make you cry, to, to, to hurt you so that you never do that again. No, to rock you to the very soul of your core right. and make it obvious to you that yep. you are nothing and you should concentrate on that for a few minutes. Uh, I always love hecklers. I looked at them as an opportunity, but I agree with everything you said 100%. Uh, my experience with fellow comedians is that they are either extremely close friends or get away from me due to some violent content parental discretion is advised it's time america mr mr north of south american all the ships at sea let's go to press so sit back buckle in place your tray table in its upright locked position and get ready for big time radio friends it's time for Good evening. 
evening. It is Tuesday, January 25th, 2015, episode 235. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show, we are going to comedy school. Tonight, we're talking all about it with Kevin Bartini, a guy that knows all about it. He himself schooled in clubs all over New York City. Kevin warms up audiences for shows like The Daily Show. He's written comedy from sketch to material for other comedians. He's produced comedy shows. He's an amazing stand-up comic, and he was behind the successful effort to name a street after George Carlin in New York, for crying out loud. And his new album, The Unintentional White Album, has just been released to rave reviews, and you can get it on iTunes. Or better still, go to KevinBartini.com to get all the funny you want. Get ready to hear what it takes to make it in the world of stand-up comedy from the extremely funny stand-up comedian Kevin Bartini tonight on The Tom Gully Show. I am the Tom Gully Show podcast translator 3000. Translating newsmakers for humans. Translating Bristol Palin. Um, regardless of what I did personally, I just I just think that abstinence is the only way that you can effectively 100% foolproof way to prevent pregnancy. Translation. Here's how my special brand of abstinence works. First I find a muscle-bound simpleton. Then I let him pin my ankles behind my head and pound me like a veal cutlet. Encouraging him to thrust his throbbing love sickle into my pulsating meat wallet. Over and over and over again. Banging me like a screen door in a hurricane. Filling my tampon tunnel with his man mustard. Then, later, believe it or not, I get $20,000 for giving a speech on abstinence. Kind of like a guy with one hand getting $20,000 to talk about lawnmower safety. This has been the Tom Gully Show Podcast Translator 3000. Good day. With us now is without question the funniest guy on the program at this moment. He warms up crowds for The Daily Show and uh, The Colbert Report, even though that just went away. He was the guy that did that. He's been on Cash Cab, Newlywed Games, Saturday Night Live. What would you do? I could go on and on. We'll get to it. Take your time. We'll get to it. Uh, his new album, the Unintentionally White album, was just released, and you can get it on iTunes for under $10. He's here with us now, the one, the only, Kevin Bartini. Hey, Tom. How you doing? It's a party all day. Uh, <laughs> that's great. I'm not the one, the only. I'm a junior, so I'm the one of two Kevin Bartinis, technically. You are the Kevin Bart, the only one and only Kevin Bartini Jr., however. Yes, that's right. As yeah. far as I know. As far as I know. Yes. Kind of already answered my question. What's up? Uh, Bartini, real name or just the coolest hipster drinking name in the history of mankind on earth? <laughs> it, is, uh, it is my real name, born with it. Uh, it but it's one of those um, godfather things. It, it was given to, to my great-grandfather or something like that. One of those Ellis Island where they screw up. It was in, in Italy. <laughs> It was Bartoli, and they screwed it up at Ellis Island. Uh, and I prefer Bartini. So that's what said. very cool. Um, <laughs> if you. if the comedy thing fails, you're guaranteed lounge act forever. Uh, well, that's what I have been for the last fifteen years. So. Uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I'll be honest. I didn't know that much about you 
until the initiative to get a street named after, you know, the legend George uh-huh. Carlin. Uh-huh. Uh, first, way to go and thank you. And okay. second, how did how did that come about? How did you help make that happen? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. Um, it came about just as a, as a idea, just as um popped up in conversation one Sunday afternoon. I, I was hanging out with a friend, another comic, and um, we uh, conversation just shifted over to George Carlin, and we were talking about our favorite albums and this and that. And a couple days before, I had uh, taken a walk in my neighborhood over to find the building that George Carlin grew up in. <clears throat> he had published the address in his um, in his autobiography, and it, it's in my neighborhood. So I made made a little pilgrimage over there, and uh, I was telling my friend that afternoon how strange it was to go over to that street, to that block, to that building where George Carlin lived, maintained a residence for well over forty years. I mean, that was his home, and where he he you know did so many of his albums were you know especially early routines were about that neighborhood. And if you're a George Carlin fan, 121st Street in in Morningside Heights, that's your that's your Abbey Road, you know. Right. And, and I I was saying to him how strange it is that this legendary figure was from there and and really put that area on the map, and they've done nothing to memorialize him there's there wasn't a there was no gold plaque on the building there there was no street sign there was no you know no deli had a george carlin sandwich there was nothing you would never know he had ever been there and i just said uh we talked about it for a second i just kind of said offhand i was like you know i said one of those things boy somebody really needs to get on that somebody really needs to get the city to you know to, to hang a street sign and name that George Carlin way, not knowing what would go into it. And uh, my buddy was just like, well, well, you should be that guy. Why don't you do it? And it just, it was just like, you know what? Yeah. All right. Why don't I do it? I'm, I'm probably the perfect guy for this. I, I live in the neighborhood. I'm a comedian myself, which means that I'm a big admirer of George Carlin. And I also have, boundless amounts of free time uh, <laughs> so you know why not so we um we he and i started out together he's much more busy than i am so it ended up you know i did it and uh and and within a week we were standing i was standing on a corner of a uh, 121st and broadway with a clipboard getting people to sign my petition and slowly over the course of the summer we uh you know, I was joined by a couple of volunteers, heard about it and joined me, and my wife started to do it with me, and one of my close friends started to do it, and, you know, we made a little, you know, a couple Sunday afternoons of it, and uh, that was it. We we ended up getting 500 signatures on our petition up on that block, and then we submitted it, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Well, it's awesome. It's just awesome, Thanks. and uh, I imagine other comedians. And as as the thing snowballed, you got more and more help and sort of recognition as it went along. Definitely recognition. There wasn't a lot of help necessary, honestly. Once, um, once we had gotten our five hundred signatures, pen and paper, we submitted them to the community board, and um, that's when you know the the Catholic Church started to protest and and got involved and we started our everything after that went online um it was a it was a change.org petition and that petition ended up getting us almost 
10,000 signatures. And uh, it was really, for the next three years, really, we were running a political campaign. Um, so there was no more standing on the streets, glad handing and, and anything like that. Um, so there wasn't a lot for volunteers to do other than, you know, some comics helped by spreading the word, tweeting and retweeting. And then we did a fundraiser where some, some, uh, some comics got involved. Um, but as far as man hours, uh, and manpower, once we got past standing on the street corner, there really wasn't a lot for a lot of people to do. So weird that the Catholic Church would would protest because I, growing up, uh, some of my favorite memories of the Catholic Church were like George Carlin memories. You know, the (laughs) things that he said on his album, you were just shaking your head going, yeah, I had the same nun. Yeah. Or or whatever. You know, I'm uh, he's actually good advertising for the Catholic Church, if you ask me. You would think. But at the same time, he one of the main themes that always ran through. His work was, you know, it was he had a very anti-authoritarian strain, and his one of his main themes was to, you know, to question everything and the dangers and the evil of blind faith. And when you're the Catholic Church, you know, two things you need are blind faith, and you need people to believe that you have authority over them. And yeah. if somebody pokes holes in those, that's bad for business. So yeah. I think. I think really that was the biggest threat that he he was to them was, you know, I mean, certainly I was I was a born atheist. I didn't you know, I went to Catholic Church, but I knew I didn't believe in any of that from as soon as they were telling me. Um, But it wasn't until I was hearing George Carlin when I was like 10 that I started to even realize that questioning the church was even a possibility. And it, it it certainly made it a lot easier for me when, you know. When I, as soon as I was out of grade school, uh, to turn my back and never step foot back in the church, as far as I was concerned. So he helped on that matter, and, and, and in that way, I'm sure he's not. I'm sure that helped with a lot of other people. And like I said, that's not good for business. No, because they're in the blind faith business. Exactly, I mean, they're the basically the uh, the leading manufacturer of your blind faith. Uh, that's what they need they need bodies because they need tithing. That's oh all boy, tithing. Yeah, I I just. Uh, uh, I remember when I was like, you know, you get confirmed and you think, hey, I am confirmed now. This is great. And then that week you get a box with oh, yeah. envelopes in it and oh, it's really? for your tithing. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember the whole time I was in it going, well, these seem like good basic guidelines. Don't kill anybody. Don't do yeah. their why, you know, but these other people have the same rules we do. I mean, yeah. what, what, what's, I mean, I, I feel like I picked a Chevy and these guys are driving a Ford, and I guess that gets into Lenny Bruce a little bit, but I feel yeah. like we're kindred spirits to a certain degree because of the first thing on your sizzle reel. I'm okay. not, I'm not going to do it because I'll screw it up. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. Was it's, it, I it's, don't it's like a, people? Or yes. It's yeah. A, oh, my God. <laughs> Probably 20,000 times on this show, I just stopped down and said, I just don't like people. Right. Is uh, you know I like a person. Yeah. But people. people good God. Um, is that sort of a part of your whole thing in terms of observational comedy or the kind of comedy that you do? Do you brand yourself that way, or do you just find funny crap and put it in your act? Yeah, I think it's more funny crap, and I put it in my act. But I like, I like persons. You know, I like one on one. But when when people start to associate themselves as a group, that's 
that's where I, you know, I, I generally tune out or I, I don't like, you know, that was one of the things like when I was, you know, not when I was a kid or anything, leaving, leaving the Catholic church and all that, it was, it always just seemed to me, these were just different groups and, and different ways of, 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 um, segregating yourself from other cultures. Like it, it just seemed ridiculous to me that it was, you know, we were taught even in the, in the eighties and nineties as a Catholic that, you know, you only, when you grow up, you will only marry a Catholic. Never, never of course, only a Catholic woman, you know, never a chance of a man, but right. you know, you know, you, you could never marry a Jew or a Protestant or something. And then when, when I realized like, well, if, if my mother you know, a month before I had been born had changed from Catholic to Protestant. Well, then I could marry this girl. It was, it yeah, seems, yeah. it's just so ridiculous. It's it, so I don't like when people group themselves in a way that, that excludes them from others. And, and, and so when you get people together in a, in a large group for a single purpose, I, 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 you know, uh, I tend to, uh, I tend to, to back away from that as often as possible. Were you one of those kids like I was that like the teachers and none of the other students could understand because there would be times when everybody else would say, oh, this is the right answer or this is the thing we should do. And you'd be like, no, <laughs> I, I don't think so. Uh, and no, the- I don't know if I was I don't know if I was a contrarian so much. Uh I would a lot of times all the the teacher and all the kid students would get one answer and I would get another one and that's just because I was stupid and I got the wrong answer. <laughs> well, that, but, but I wasn't very contrarian. Well, not so much contrarian, but it was like um, uh, I the, the number of people that are involved in the decision doesn't affect me. I'll go along with the group when it's a good idea, but sure. But when it's not, then well, but. Why do I have to do that? Just because everybody else is doing it, kind of. Oh a, yeah, I certainly had a bit of that. I definitely had a bit of that. Yeah. Were you the yeah. class clown? Were you? When did the funny start? Yeah, I was a class clown. This is I, this is the this is the thing where because I'm a comedian, when I say this, I always I'm always wary that it makes me sound like a dick. I was literally the funniest kid from you know day one. I was uh, you know kindergarten, whatever preschool. I was always the funniest kid, and it always when you're a comedian, you say you know. I don't know. People don't want to hear that. It's like a model saying, oh, no, I was born beautiful. I just was. I was the funniest kid. And my father's very funny. It's just it was in my genes. Um, so I was the class clown and I was I was all of that. And, and I wanted and I, I loved stand up comedy and I loved sketch and I wanted to do it since I was about six years old. So I was I was, you know, never the kid who was wildly into sports and I was never the kid who was wildly into comic books or sci-fi. My nerdiness was towards comedy and that's just, it's just who I was from, from, from day one. It's so strange because, uh, you know, I did stand up for three years long before you were born probably. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm nowhere, I'm not comparing myself to you at all, but I will say this when you are funny and you're young, you know you're funny. I mean, that's yeah. that's your thing at school every day is to be funny, and people yeah. are laughing at you. So there's no question in your mind uh, that you're that you're funny. And right. unlike all those other things you mentioned, there might be a a chess club or a comic book club or a thing mm-hmm. or a structure for that, you know. But yeah. when you're funny, when you're that funny guy, 
there's nothing until you get like into high school or college and actually get to maybe start performing. There's no comedy school or here's what you do. Uh, right. You just kind of evolve, right? Yeah, there was there was no real outlet for it. it that's how that's why there are class clowns because you create your own situations <laughs> and you get labeled as as the you know troublemaker or or disruptive in class. But I wanted you know I I was always as a kid into um, whenever I could doing theater. That was my outlet. Uh, I did you know, grade school and then high school and, and, and what little community college I went to and summer stock and, you know, any theater I did, cause that was an outlet. And it was also my way of getting stage time before I could actually do stand up. So I, uh, you know, we, we had, we had recess and we had gym class and, you know, I had times where I was able to be funny and to, to get it out and to be that way. But yeah, yeah, there's no, you know, there, my no 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 such thing as uh you know improv group or or stand up club or something like that at the school. Who knows? Maybe some schools now have. I wouldn't be surprised if some schools now have uh, teach some improv or something like that. Wouldn't yeah, be a probably bad do. Idea. But it, back in our day, that that certainly didn't happen. No, it's in our day. It was it was called hanging in the hallway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, did you do you, did you and do you still? Uh, have that situation where because you're the funny guy during times when you really want to be serious and and you really want to be taken seriously that people don't or they he's just being funny and you're like no I'm actually this is the truth <laughs> um maybe a little but no I, you know what I'm pretty good about turning it off now that I do it as a profession um I can be just a snor. You know, people are often. I think this happens to a lot of comics. Is it's, and I think it, it feeds into why people. I already know think, what you're gonna say. Why people think we're all just depressed or something like that? Because when you meet us in person in real life and have a conversation with us, we're not all bells and whistles and every moment trying to make you laugh. I'm, you know, I'm capable of just having a a conversation as we have now for 15 minutes where I don't feel the, the need to, you know, to answer every question like a wise ass or always be getting the laugh. So I think, no, I think people who know me, you know, know when I'm being serious and know that I certainly can go off on a flight and, 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 uh, you know, and, and be funny or be on, you know, I'm, I'm the fun uncle, you know, who does, <laughs> who does stuff in, you know, in a restaurant, whatever that no adult normally would do and that kind of thing. But I, I don't, I don't think that it's hard to take me seriously. Probably. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm totally off on that. Maybe that would be a better question to ask my, my wife or my friends or my family or something like that. But right. Well, you know, uh, you know, I can, I can definitely turn it on and definitely can turn it off. Like, which is one thing like my, my wife, notes on sometimes it, that amazes her about not just me but about comics is she'll be backstage at a show like in the green room and uh we'll be you know hanging out and just talking and i could be talking about you know about any subject whatever it is with another comic and having just a completely just a regular boring nothing conversation and chatting here the the host do my intro, stop, walk on stage, do my time, have a great set, walk back off stage, 
and then just get right back into that conversation with that other person without skipping a beat. Like we can, you know, there's a way of turning it on and turning it off that, that we can do, which is, which is interesting for people who, you know, to see who, uh, who don't do that. Do you she, get, she's mark, remarked on that, you know, many times over the years. Well, she gets a peek behind the curtain to the right. inner world of the comedian that many people would probably think they like, but it's not always, yeah. uh, do, you know, horrify many people. Yes. She's gotten, now, do you get annoyed when people come up to you and, and they find out you're a comedian and they, they say, say something funny? Because I saw, I mean, yeah. Kip Adada one time, somebody did that to him. Uh-huh. And to this day when he sees them, he yells at them. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't understand that. Uh, yeah. To me, it was always sort of a compliment. Not that I was always in the mood to, you know, say something yeah. funny, but. Yeah, no, that's, the, that's a pretty much the worst thing you can do to a comic if you see them and. A public or public setting or something is ask them to be funny, ask them to turn it on because it is. It's something we turn on. It's not something you can do on command. And if and if you're the situation is being set up with somebody demanding you be funny, that's no, that's an unfunny situation to begin with. You well, know, you, unless you turn it around on them and well, what do you do? Insurance. Well, would you just do a exactly. quick claim for me? Or what I used to say was, I would love to, but. Um, could you do me a quick favor? Get 200 people, get them all really drunk, a <laughs> microphone and some lights. Yeah. And I'll do like 15 or 20 minutes worth of jokes for you. Yeah. Yeah. People, it, that, it, it happens. It happens often, you know, or, or the other annoying thing that people do. Oh, you're a comedian. Well, you need to come to my office. God, you'll get so much material. <laughs> I would, I, the urge to push you in front of a city bus is so strong when somebody <laughs> tells me that. Cause then you have to fake for like two minutes, like you're entertained by the antics of Bob from accounting as they retell it to you. Uh-huh. Oh, that's boy. Tor- that's torturous, too. It, that's torturous Uh-oh. just for non-comedians. Yeah. The and the, and the, the, the other one, the third annoying thing of the three, the trifecta, <laughs> is, and this happened This happened a couple times. Happened, I remember going to a, a family wedding, and my cousin, a cousin was dating some dude at the time, and... Uh, he fancied himself funny or a comedian, even though he'd never gotten on stage or anything. And of course, ended up seated at our table. And uh, just, you know, first thing he said, oh boy, everybody's in trouble tonight with you and me here. And thought we were going to be like Abbott and Costello or something and doing routines. And, we're, and the entire night, he was just trying to be funny, just trying to impress me with how funny he was. And it, it made for one of the longest nights of my friggin' life. <laughs> the only people who enjoy a night like that are like my wife and my brother-in-law who can just see the look on my face and just enjoy that I'm being tortured and that there's really no way out of it. Like for them, that's hilarious and, and they get to enjoy it. But those are the three things. Don't ask us to be funny. Don't think we're going to be funny t- together. And don't tell us about the funny things at your work. Uh, other than that, we're lovely people. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, especially if you buy drinks. Uh, right. Who were your comedy influences other than Carlin? I mean, uh, I, I can remember the first time I saw Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. and I saw, I think Robert Klein was the host or somebody, and I just went, I want to do that. And then I yeah. saw the sketches and stuff, and it was so new at the time. I just said, yeah. this is this is the stuff I want to do. Do you remember that moment when you, sure. you took what you like and applied it to what you want to do? Yeah, it was definitely the first cast of Saturday Night Live um, were big because, like, Nick at Night in the 80s would run half-hour 
clip shows, basically, full sketches, though, of some of the best of Saturday Night Live original cast, so in 30-minute increments. So I would watch all of those, and then on the stand-up side, it was uh, it was all the guys who were big in the in the 80s on the cable landscape. So, you know, you're, you're talking about a young Jerry Seinfeld and a young Tim Allen and a, and a uh, young Louis Black and Ellen DeGeneres and Paula Poundstone and... Um, a guy named Dennis Wolfberg, who I really like. Oh, liked wow, yeah. Boy, I haven't heard his name in ages. He's dead. He died. And that's a good here. reason. Yeah. He won, he was, he was like, he won like some award, like the, uh, you know, American Comedy Award, Comedian of the Year or something. And then he was, he died tragically uh, very shortly right thereafter. Uh, um, and it wasn't even a drug thing. I think he either had a heart attack or, or cancer or something. Mm. Uh, but he was great. And, and, you know, and then Eddie Murphy and, and the list goes on and on. I was, my favorite was Jerry Seinfeld, but I was, um, I, I was, a, I was a fan of just about everybody back then and whoever came on, whatever, you know, each night a different cable channel had a show. So who, who had whatever three comics, four comics they were showing, I was a fan of that night. Right. Um, well, I was so lucky because, uh, at the time I was sort of, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, Saturday Night Live had hit. And there's a, you you know this show. I wish I could get the, the box set. Uh, HBO had a show called On Location, which I think yeah. was the really the first ever show that put on full, uncensored mm-hmm. comedy. And, and I had seen people like John Biner or even Frank, they did a Frank Gorshin. And you'd see yeah. him on The Tonight Show or something, do their quick, three minutes or whatever it was. But when you got to see them do the full show, the one that got me was Robert Klein. I mean, he was just, just pulled me uh, straight on in. And uh, that's when things really took off. And as you say, there was a suddenly a comedy show on every channel. Yeah. Yeah. Because cable TV was booming. All these new channels were coming out and stand up was, um, was it, was it something that they could produce cheaply? You know, it, all you needed was a, a brick background and a microphone and a spotlight and a comedian that you paid $500 to. And that, and, you know, and bing, bang, boom, there's your show on a, on a little budget that they can, you know, that they can produce. So it, it killed stand-up for a while. It was called, the, you know, the boom, but it ended up killing the industry for quite a while. Oh, there was, uh, a, there was a point in time where there was the, the, the rate of stand-up comedy clubs opening it was just phenomenal. I mean, it was like at one point three hundred comedy clubs in Boston. Yeah, and, and it was, and everybody was being paid uh, astronomical sums, and you know the, what I make now to headline um, on a show uh, is oftentimes not as much as the the host would make back in the eighties. Yeah. You know, it's the, it was ridiculous. Everything was, but it's just like everything else. It was a bubble. Everything was bloated that everybody was getting, every comic was making, you know, a fortune and performing every weekend at a different club. Every city had more comedy clubs than they had comics and it was all over TV and and it, and, but the market got oversaturated and then, you know, throughout the nineties, it, it was, you know, it was really had went fallow. There wasn't a lot of stand up around. It was just in New York City and stuff. And then uh, I came on the scene and I started in 1999. And that was just, it was, you know, stand up was ticking back a little bit. But as soon as it was starting to get its sea legs back just a little, reality TV came in and nobody was doing sitcoms anymore and nobody's doing anything but reality. So it, 
took even longer for it to make a comeback. But now, thanks to the internet, thanks to YouTube and um, you know, and and Netflix and and stuff like that, there's a lot more places again that people can see stand up in the comfort of their own home and be exposed to new comics who excite them and actually become fans of comics again um, and come out to see us. And and so it's we're we're stand-ups back it's not at the 80s levels but it's back and uh it's a viable art form again which is wonderful yeah and i think there's a lot more different kinds of voices in stand-up comedy than there used to be i mean yeah you know uh not that things were you know universal back back in the day but you know you had your standard henny youngman guy you had your you know there, there was a lot more standard now there's there's uh, a lot more opportunities for female comics i think yeah. And uh, there's just a lot more voices out there. Well, there's a lot more, yeah, and, and it's, it's easier for somebody to find their audience, you know, thanks to Internet, thanks to Facebook, thanks to Twitter, thanks to all this kind of stuff. So you could be a guy whose stand-up is really personal to your experience to, you know, say, for example, you're nuts for the WWE, you know, and you're a big wrestling guy. You can literally you know, do all the stand-up and talk all you want about the WWE, even though in a general comedy club, 85% of the people don't give a shit that the Royal Rumble was last night and, and couldn't tell you, you know, uh, couldn't tell you uh, three current wrestlers. But thanks to the internet, thanks to Twitter, you can actually find your audience and you can find a bunch of people who are fans of what you're into and they're the ones who will flood to you. And you only need to sell you know, over the course of a weekend at a comedy club, maybe, a, you know, or a normal size club, 500, 1,000 tickets to be a success. So if you can target your market and your fans, you, you, can, you can talk about what you want to. So that's why you're also seeing a whole lot more of variety because guys have the freedom to now do whatever they want on stage. And if they market themselves right, they will find their audience. Well, and if a, a, a girl likes a certain kind of snarky female comics attitude or a certain number of them, it's a lot different than, going, like you say, going into a comedy club and, you know, it's carte blanche, whatever's up there. Right. You, you can go straight to the filet, so to speak, of, of yeah. what you like. Yeah, and you can, and you don't even have to go to the comedy clubs. You could be, you know, like there's this whole segment of the, you know, the nerd comics who are into the uh, comic books and the superhero culture. Well, they don't even need to go play the real comedy clubs. They can come to your town and do a coffee shop or, uh, you know, or or a or or literally a comic book store or something like that, and find their audience there. You don't well, even need to go to the uh, Chuckle Hut. There's Chris Gore is a friend of mine. He's uh, doing stand up comedy out in L.A. Uh, and they do a thing called Kings of Cosplay, and it's okay. an actual show where they improv. In the costumes as the superheroes. It's actually kind of funny wow. if you're into the superhero yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, now, do you remember the first club you played? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the first club I I played is called Comedy Works, and it's in Albany. Um, still there in a different location, but that's the first one. And I, I did their club basically exclusively for a year um, when I first started because they were the closest comedy club to my parents' house where I lived. You know, I was like 19, 20 years old. I and, hear um, you. I hear you. I got the I, same story. Yeah. I would do the comedy works. Uh, and back then, it was I would probably only get up three times a month because they would only have shows on Friday and Saturday nights, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock. 
and they would they were wonderful to young comics to you know to guys in the area that wanted to try so there was a there was a handful of us and they would give us five minute guest spots at the beginning of the show but only on the 10 o'clock show and then if it was a weekend with a big headliner we weren't getting on that show so there were no there weren't open mics in that area there weren't other places there weren't bar shows i couldn't put on a bar show if i'd wanted to because there wasn't enough local talent to fill it so i was really for the first year just you know just waiting to do those 5 minute spots and sometimes a week or two would go on in between and it was but that's what i did and that's why you had to you know i had to once i had my uh, a little bit of you know, maybe five or seven minutes worth of an act that I cobbled together. That's why I moved right to New York City right away. Do you remember the first time that somebody came to you and said, uh, hey, we want you to do a, a couple extra minutes? Um, not a couple extra minutes. I do remember the first time when I was doing the guest spots at the Comedy Works that one of the headliner that the headliner of the weekend came up and was complimentary and i remember i was actually doing okay so i was doing the the friday night 10 o'clock show i did a guest spot and the headliner uh it was kevin downey jr and he came up you know after and he said hey you were funny why don't you come back and do the shows t tomorrow night so that was a huge compliment so i came back the next night I think I even got to do the eight o'clock and the ten o'clock because the headliner had, you know, kind of, you know, liked me, and then uh, that was the first, you know, because there were some other guest spots there that night too, and it was he was only me got invited, and it was wildly uh, um, complimentary, and I, you know, and and for him it was nothing, it was you know, right. was, oh, hey, you're a funny kid, uh, why don't you come back? But for me, it gave me a huge boost of confidence, and then. Probably, you know, maybe a year or two later, I saw him in a club here in New York, and I told him that story. I relayed that story to him that of what that meant to me and everything. And he and I have been close, close friends ever since. That is awesome. Yeah, that is one, of, totally one of my awesome. closest buddies in comedies, and now uh, uh, one of uh, one of the, if not the longest history of a comedian friend that I have. Well, that's something. I'll go ahead and ask you. I had it for later, but. Uh, my experience with fellow comedians is that they are either extremely close friends or get away from me. Uh, oh, yeah. What's your what's your what's your uh, what's you're probably a nicer person than me though. But <laughs> what, what's your what's your experience like? Well, I don't know. I actually think ninety nine percent of the comics that I know are neither of those. They're just contemporaries. Um, they're people who I see in the clubs when I go in and I do a spot and it's wonderful to see them and, you know, we'll chat backstage and catch up and, and shoot the shit and, and, uh, and, and, you know, and have a nice time, uh, you know, and then go on about our ways and know we'll, you know, we'll see each other again at another show shortly and catch up. Uh, and do it all over again. Um, there's very few who are, you know, who I, you know, who we hate each other. There's very few of that. And there's also very few who I really socialize with outside of the comedy clubs. So it's, it's more of coworkers. You're a normal person. That's what that indicates Maybe that, to me. That uh, yeah, I, got, I, I really, I've, I've only got 
probably two or three comics who I socialize with. And even them, some of them aren't even comics anymore. Like Downey, he and I get together, you know, maybe once a month, every once in a while, we'll go, we'll, you know, we'll go out and have cigars together, go, you know, hang out. And there's one or two who we'll go out to dinner with or, you know, but there's not a lot of that, you know, let's get our wives together and, and, and go out for dinner on a, you know, on a night or something that, that maybe that's just me that I'm not a wildly social person or something like that. But, um, there, there certainly aren't very many that I hate or hate me. I would hope. Yeah. I, when I did it, I don't even think any of the guys I did it with were married. I mean, it was just a bunch of vagabond. Well, anyway, uh, now when did you go pro? I know this is like a hard question to answer because, it's that thing where you're doing it, you're starting to get paid, but not enough to make a living. And then at some point in time, you just stop doing that other thing you were doing to pay the rent. When, when did that happen for you? Um, okay. Well, very early on, however, I would not have called myself a pro back then. Um, I did like my first year or two in the city, I worked the door at Stand Up New York, which which meant I, um, it was basically like an internship. I think they paid me fifteen dollars for a shift on a weeknight, and maybe twenty five or forty dollars on the weekend. And you know, you'd be there from about five o'clock at night till probably midnight, one in the morning. Um, you're tearing tickets, delivering waffle fries. You're you're lighting the red light to tell comics to get off, and you're making sure the next comic is there to go on. And if the toilet downstairs got got messed up you were the one going down with a plunger um and your pay was you know fifteen dollars a couple slices of pizza and a couple of spots on the show but for me the real pay was getting to watch night in and night out at a professional club in the city how the pros work and and really experiencing how a Jim Gaffigan would come in with a bit and would work it out and edit it over the course of a week or a month. So, you know, I, I got to learn the process and, and that. Um, so I did that for a while and was also working like as a temp and, uh, you know, do, doing some menial day work, uh, working as a, a, you know, as a caterer and bartending, that kind of thing here and there to pay the bills. And then, um, then I got into producing shows on my own, like the new talent shows, um, which are big in New York City. They, they're also called bringer shows, which is basically the, you know, the new comics to get stage time in, in real clubs in New York because of such a demand for stage time and because the clubs have Dave Attell and Jim Gaffigan and 300 guys just like them that they can call and fill their lineup with at any night, they don't have a lot of motivation to put on um, basically open micers who aren't, haven't proven themselves yet. And, and so the way that new talent gets on the show is to bring audience. You have to bring eight people who pay a full cover and buy two drinks. And if you get your eight people, you get to do your seven minutes of stage time. And if you don't, you don't go on. So um, because I was working at the club, I, I got brought in to start producing those and that I did for a number of years. And that was, that afforded me, I was not a professional comic, but that afforded me not to have to, um, temp anymore and not have to bartend. And then, uh, you know, I did that a couple of years and then it's, it had been a, you know, once I 
quote unquote turned pro and stopped doing that yet didn't have a day job. Um, it was tight, tough going there for quite a while. I was fortunate that my wife has had steady work and, you know, she would bring in the consistent paycheck, whereas I would bring in, um, they would come in, you know, spurts. I would get a nice payday here and there and, you know, make ends meet. But, um, I don't know when I would, you know, probably, probably only about five years ago. It was probably when I got hired by the daily show that you could say I actually turned pro because then I was, um, getting, you know, everything I made, all my money comes from being funny. It's either from doing audience warm up for TV or for writing for websites or for other comedians or writing on, you know, or doing stand up or doing radio guest stuff. Um, so everything comes from being a comedian. Um, but I don't know if there was a, there was never, I never had that specific date where I, you know, I, uh, I tipped my desk over and put <laughs> in the office the finger and said, I'm going pro. It was, it was different for me because of the producing and, and everything else. Um, right, right. Truthfully uh, up until last week, I probably should have still had a, a bartending gig on the side or something like that. Just, <laughs> just for a little bit more consistency because my, you know, to be a little bit more fair to my wife, cause she really did carry the burden of having to be the consistent breadwinner uh for all those years well you talked about warming up for these shows and for for those people who have not been to the taping of a, a television program i don't yeah. think they're aware that way back into the 70s for crying out loud even before that there were people that would come out and warm up these crowds who and i i remember when i i the first time i went to the letterman show i left the show and went you know, I'd have paid to see Bill Wendell just warm me up for another half an hour or whatever. I mean, uh, th that is, number one, very important to the show yep. and and a big deal that it, it's it's. Uh, can you talk about the the, the uh, practice, yeah, practice sure. of doing that? Because sure. you're doing something really important. You're doing something really for a giant TV show. But yet you, you don't necessarily have the notoriety that goes along with it. Right. Yeah. It, audience warm up, something that goes back. Even beyond the seventies, as as long as there is, I mean, it goes back. I know that that uh, Ed Sullivan had one, and I'm I'm sure I'm sure Martin and Lewis and Milton Berle had some sort of a warm up too. Basically, as any time you watch a television show that has a live studio audience, you can guarantee be guaranteed that before the cameras roll, and oftentimes during the commercial breaks, there is a person out in front of that audience performing and entertaining and getting, excuse me, getting them warmed up. Um, we're, uh, you know, my job is, is, is to, to go out. I mark the beginning of the show. I mark for the studio audience. I'm the beginning of the entertainment for that night. And now unlike, you know, when you're the opening act at, uh, you know, just doing it at a, at a, at a theater opening for somebody or opening, um, you know, say, say on the road for, for some big comic at a theater. Um, the job that, that is just, they have a comic go out and do 25 minutes and people are there to see stand up, and that's what they get. And, you know, here, my job is, is to be a bit of a cheerleader to get them cheering, to get them excited, to get them pumped up. Um, but it's also my job to, you know, obviously to be funny, but it's also my job to, to um, 
deliver a message to the audience from the producers, from the, you know, of what is expected of the audience. You know, you don't, when you go to a, a live taping of a TV show, you, you actually have a job. You're not there just to be entertained. Your job is to be loud, to be boisterous, to make the show look good. So when people are watching it at home, it sounds like the jokes are killing. It sounds like everybody's having a great time. And that's because the audience has been properly warmed up and properly excited. So it's my job to make sure that the audience is in the right mindset and, and understands what it is we're trying to accomplish and how they can help us. So um, I've been, you know, I, I've been fortunate that I've, I've been able to do it for a number of, of shows over the years. And, and now uh, as of just this past week, I'm, I'm, you know, I was hired to be the guy doing the warm up every day for the nightly show with Larry Wilmore. So that's exciting for me. Hey, congratulations. Um, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. This is a nice one because the, the, the daily show and Colbert and everything else I've, most everything else I've done, there's been one or other, one or two shows that didn't last that I worked on, but, um, uh, I would be, I would be quote unquote, a warm up guy. I would be one of two or three on a rotation and you get into that job on a standing show like the daily show that's been around forever. Um, as one of the backup guys, you know, they have their main guy, he's there every day, but some days he can't be there. He's working comics. Some, you know, oftentimes he has to fly out or leave on a Wednesday night. So somebody, they need somebody there for the Thursday taping. So, I was one of the guys and I would only be booked when the guys ahead of me in the pecking order couldn't do it. So it wasn't consistent over the course of the last four years between The Daily Show and Colbert. I've, I've easily done over 100 episodes, but it was, you know, there would sometimes be weeks or even months that go by where I didn't get a call. So it was, it was nice to do, but it was nothing consistent. Now this time, I'm the guy. So I, I have the guarantee that the, the each episode is mine to do unless I go on the road and then I'll have a backup. So um, I'm really excited about that. It is this is the first consistent paycheck I've ever gotten uh, since I started comedy. Excellent. That is outstanding. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. That's the thing with uh, stand up comedy. And you mentioned it earlier is it's not that you don't make any money, but your money comes in such, you know, bizarre cash flow. That that yeah. that steady gig is just that is just golden. Yeah, exactly. It, it it is. There's there are nights. You know, if you're in the if you're in New York and you're performing night after night, even if you're a professional with TV credits and a history, um, you're still more shows than not. You're doing. You're not even getting paid to do them. And then if you are getting paid, it's only twenty five or fifty dollars. It's not. You know, you, you certainly can't support a family on that. And then, uh, you know, then you go on the road and there's money there. And every once in a while you get a corporate gig or a college and that pays you thousands. But, uh, you know, you never know when the next one of those is going to pop up. Right. Right. Now, you talked earlier about not liking people, which brings up hecklers. And just go. Just your thoughts on hecklers. Um. I don't know. I, I don't dislike hecklers. You, you, you have to, the first thing you have to do when you're doing standup and when it comes to dealing with hecklers is you have to really quickly ascertain what their motivation is and, and, and then how to, how to respond accordingly. Because 
you know, by definition, a heckler is, is anyone who disrupts the show. So anyone who speaks, anyone who uh, whatever, to take focus away from the performer is heckling. So, but that doesn't mean that all hecklers are created equal. Some people may be talking or something and maybe expressing that they agree with what you just said, or they may be thinking that they're helping by adding a punchline for you, or they may be just talking too loud to the person next to them who missed part of the last joke or something or, like that. Or you said something, and they all are talking about the guy at the table who is the living example of what right. you said or whatever. Right, exactly. And so those people, they're... they're they don't have malice. They're not doing it to be dicks. They're not. Then, but then they're and and so then there's those other hecklers who do have malice, who do who are doing it, who are doing it to tell you you suck or are are offended by got offended by a joke you did and now want to to ruin it or are or are too drunk and want to make the show about themselves or are just entitled pricks who think the show is about them. There's a bunch of, you know, the other side of it. So you have to quickly ascertain what's their motivation. Is this somebody who's who's well-intentioned and you just need to ask them to keep it down or even ignore them or is this or is this someone who is malignant and has the potential of ruining your entire night and your entire audience in which case then you decide what to do. If somebody's, you know, somebody's malignant, my my feeling is that we have a we have an unwritten social compact between the comedian and the audience, and that is there's one microphone and there's one spotlight, and they're both pointed at one person, and that's me. And three hundred people are in that room. Three hundred and one people are in that room. Three hundred of them paid to be there. They made the decision to go. They paid their hard-earned money to be there. They bought their drinks to be there. And the reason they're there is to see the one guy. And so if you are heckling and are malignant and are doing this as a way of, um, you know, you know, potentially ruining the night for those 300 people, for everybody else who got a sitter, paid for parking, et cetera, made this their night, then it is my job to put you in your place, to stop it as quickly as I can. And I always feel like when I'm doing crowd work, I will never make fun of somebody for something they can't change. So if you're in my audience at a TV taping, I'm going to make fun of you for wearing an ugly sweater. And if you're a 20-year-old dude, I'm going to make fun of you for you know being a frat guy looking date rapist or something like that. But I would never make fun of somebody for having you know janky teeth or for going bald or for being fat or for whatever, having terrible acne, whatever it is, you can't change it. You're I'm, I'm guessing you're self-conscious about it and you're here to have a good time. So I'm not going to do that. But if you're a heckler in my audience who is malignant, that's exactly what I'm going to hit you with first. I'm going to try my best to humiliate you, to make you cry, to, to, to hurt you so that you never do that again. No, to rock you to the very soul of your core right. and make it obvious to you that yep. you are nothing and you should concentrate on that for a few minutes. Uh, I always love hecklers. I looked at them as an opportunity, but I agree with everything you said 100%. Yeah, and that's where, that's where I think a lot of times 
um, when you when you see those videos of comedians on stage, the the ones that are so controversial, like you know, oh my God, he he said faggot or something like that. He probably didn't do a joke about that. He's probably dealing with a heckler and trying to make him cry and using words that are effective to that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, totally, totally. Nine times out of ten, that's what's happening. But you don't see the four minutes that lead up to the comic saying something awful. You just see the the ten-second clip of him spewing out uh, an invective, which I always find to be pretty unfair yeah yeah and well and i i think one of the most unfair things is recently comedians and have taken a lot of heat for things they say on stage and my personal opinion is when you go into a comedy club leave your good moral tone behind it's all about making people laugh and if a guy can make you laugh by shocking your your sense of convention that's what comedy's about yeah, uh, you can't then say Gilbert Gottfried said this about the, right. the the earthquake in Japan or whatever. It's that's his job. I'll give you a great example about that since you brought up Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert um, performed at Caroline's back in October on the night we did the George Carlin way. We actually hung the sign and we had a full George Carlin day where we had a, the ceremony in the afternoon. Where, where we unveiled the sign and then a celebration that night at Caroline's. It was sold out. It was an all-star lineup. Uh, it was presented by George's daughter, Kelly. His brother, Patrick, was there. They were both took the stage. The room was filled with George Carlin fans. And Gilbert ended up stealing the show because what he did is he went on, and you can find it on YouTube. Um, and it's, a, it's an amazing set. He, he went on. And in the first minute or two, very early on, he said something about George Carlin, like complimentary. And weirdly, like only two people in the room clapped or something. And he just glommed onto that right right there. And he turned it into, you know, apparently everybody else hated George Carlin. <laughs> and so he just riffed for eight or eight minutes or so of how he's the same way. So he took on this persona that he's glad George Carlin was dead. And fuck George Carlin. And the best day of my life wasn't when my kids were born. It's when I found out George Carlin was dead. (laughs) And I didn't believe in God until I found out that George Carlin was dead. And and you're you're thinking that, you know, the the balls of this guy on this night where we're celebrating him to do that and to say such offensive stuff in front of his daughter, in front of his brother. And, you know, people – some people were offended. I know – you know, I had an aunt who was in the room who earlier that afternoon asked me if I would get her a picture with Gilbert. And then after that night, it was like, oh, I've lost all respect for him. But he li- he literally pulled pulled it off and had the set of the night because he, you know, he wasn't uh. afraid to, to, to try that and, and to to be uh, purposefully offensive. And the thing you had to understand was he was making he, it was eight minutes making fun of the fact that the audience didn't applaud enough when he said something nice about George Carlin and they were all there to celebrate him to begin with. Well, I just I mean, come on. I, you go into a comedy club. I don't understand how you can possibly get offended. And I'm not yeah. I'm, look, I, I, this is just me. I don't other people. If you get offended, God bless you. Whatever you yeah. do, go do it. But there's a chance when you're you going to get offended. Well, it, but but. 
if you don't know what if you don't know what you're in for depending on the act there is a chance that you'll be offended i mean i used to open for lisa lampanelli um oh yeah kill now she she was one of the other ones she brought me down to new york i met her in albany um my first year and she would let she would take me out on on the road and 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 before she was a star and before people really knew what they were in for, if they were just coming to a comedy club to see a show and they had no idea and it's just whatever, you know, catch as catch can, whatever comic you're going to see, they didn't know what her act was. And, I mean, in, in, she was freely throwing out terms like fag and chink and spick and queer and this and that. And every, every racial slur and every joke was at the expense of somebody in the audience because they were black or because they were Asian. And that was the entire act. And if you didn't get it, and if you didn't get the humor of it, it you know, people would walk out and would get offended. Um, so it, it happens. And, and you can never, and you never know, you could have, I don't do material like that, but I could have a joke in my act about, okay, here's, a, here's an example. Um, I, I have a, a, a bit, and it's on my new album. And it's, this is actually one of my favorite moments that ever happened. Um, I, I was doing a bit that's on the album, um, and, and, and the premise of the bit is my wife and I don't want to have children. And oh, my, I love this my, bit. My family are very much about wanting more grandkids on both sides of, you know, want grand, and the pressure and all that. So we we have this uh we thought it would be a good idea to explain to them to sit them down like adults and the the bit is my mother didn't take it well and my mother took it the worst um she actually said well what if you were to conceive a child in a lab and i were to carry it to term for you <laughs> and i said you know then the punchline after that is is uh you know um, the only time in my life I think it's ever remotely appropriate for my mother to come in contact with my sperm is when she was doing my laundry. It's a joke, <laughs> right? It's, it is a joke, which, is, which always gets a nice laugh, and, and I always like to leave a little pause to take a nice breath before I say when she's doing my laundry – because it makes people for a second uncomfortable. Like, well, what the, where's he going with they that? They start to finish the sentence in their head and yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm just to give you an idea of how a, a joke like that, that, that could offend somebody and, and probably did. I was doing it at Gotham Comedy Club one night. And in, in, the, in the room, right in the middle table, there was a table of, oh, 50 to 60-year-old uh, transvestites or transsexuals. Dudes who looked like, you know, were trying to still dress like Judy Garland, but ended up looking like Liza Minnelli now. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not I'm not painting every transsexual with the same broad stroke here. And I'm not saying that everybody who who cross dresses or anything like that does it because of awful sexual abuse in their childhood and their formative years. But obviously some that is the case. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe not all, some. There's a percentage. Yes. So I did that joke, and when I got to that pregnant pause, because that joke was a joke that obviously touches on incest in some way, and a mother and a son in some way, one of the, one of the women at that table audibly groaned like, like, like was punched in the gut, just, oh, like, oh, it, man. Was, 
It was like some old, old wound had just been un, un, unearthed and I ripped the scab off of it, you know? So that joke has never offended anybody. But for that one person who I'm sure had some sort of terrible abuse at the hand of his mother or his father or something, that joke offended them. And, and, and to, to that person's credit, didn't walk out, didn't cause a scene, but I heard it. And in my inside, I, I chuckled, but you know, that's just an example. Like you, you, you don't know every person in the room has a different history right. and has, has had different traumas. Um, I was just doing a, a documentary the other day about this subject and I was doing an interview and I said, you know, because stand up in a bit, it's, it's a piece of art just like anything else. And you could draw do a painting of a raindrop and everybody looks at that painting of a raindrop with a different perspective. One person just sees it as a raindrop. Another person sees it as a comment on, on pollution and another sees a raindrop as one of the, you know, water, one of the basic elements of life. And then another person's brother drowned and is, you know, has a reaction because it's a drop of water and that's what killed their brother. And so through their prism, that, piece of art is taken very differently and they're offended by it or they're upset by it. So you can never, you can never cover your ass a hundred percent that you're not going to offend somebody. Um, no. but again, it, it's like I said with the hecklers, it, I know when I do a bit, if there's no, if I write that bit and there's no malice in my heart, when I write it, then I have nothing to be worried about. And if you're offended by something, then that's on you. Yeah, because well, the thing that used to just freak me out is that I'd get off the stage and go back to wherever the, I was supposed to hang out, and yeah. someone would come up to me and just be really shaken, like I can't believe that. And and I would just because when I'm on stage, I don't care. Yeah. And and then afterwards they they come up and I it it was always very uh surreal. I would always be I it wasn't really meant to make you upset. Right. And I would always say the same thing to him and this sometimes would make him more mad is that maybe you shouldn't take your comedy quite so seriously. Right. Yeah, people don't that's the thing now thanks to the internet. People don't get in your face as often one on one. They'll right. just go home and blog about it or tweet about it. <laughs> yeah. Just leaving yeah. an eternal scar against your name digitally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't, yeah, because I've not had a lot of experiences where I've, I've, you know, been confronted after too often. Um, it happens every once in a while. But, but like I said, as long as you, as long as the, the bit you wrote, you don't have intended malice, then you can sleep at night. And, and, and I, and I know some people are going to find any joke, there's some element that's going to offend somebody. But, for the vast majority of everybody else, it's gonna it's gonna tickle them, and that's what I'm shooting for. Uh, what advice do you have for young comics? Some guy that's wanting to get started today. Get out of it. Don't <laughs> do it. I need the money, and you're gonna take a gig away from me eventually. So just quit now. Um, my best advice that I always tell young guys is: if you're just starting out, um, don't invite your friends or your family to see you for the first six months to a year. I think that's very important, and the reason is, I think you really, you really need to learn to get your proper footing, to get comfortable on stage, to get a couple of jokes under your belt, to get a little bit of confidence. And the way you do that is, first of all, you're going to bomb 99.9% .9 of the time for your first year. You're just going to suck, and it's nothing personal. Louis C.K. 
and Jerry Seinfeld, they sucked their first year too. Everybody does. You don't, you, 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 you can't run until you learn to walk. So don't burden yourself with knowing that there are people in the audience who you're going to have to face over the breakfast table the next morning, or you're going to have to see at family functions the next month, or, um, or you, you know, you know, those people are going to be judging you. Why put yourself through that? Go up, go in front of an audience that doesn't know you, that's not going to remember you, and, and tank and realize that if the people are coming to a professional show, they're going to see, you know, like when I was doing the Albany days, they would see me do five minutes and suck, and that would be the end of it. Then the real show starts, then the feature goes out, and the headliner goes out, and those people, by the time that show is over, are already 90 minutes removed of 90 minutes of entertainment removed from your five minutes of awkward and they're going to leave and they're going to be driving home and they're going to be talking about the headliner who did great or the headliner who who tanked they're not going to remember the five minute guy who struggled up there unless you piss your pants in front of them or run off stage crying they're not going to remember you and they're going to come back and see you again in six months and they're probably not going to remember that you they saw you then so just realize that you are absolutely anonymous at the beginning you can fail with anonymity it's dancing like nobody's watching because nobody's going to remember you and from that you have the freedom to grow and to experiment and to learn and it's the only thing that you can't do without an audience, you know? You can take a million cuts in a batting cage before you ever, you know, face a live pitcher in front of people. Same thing you can go, you know, and practice at a driving range before you ever golf in front of anybody. You can't do comedy without an audience. So don't let anybody you know see you until you've at least got five or seven minutes where you know you're not going to embarrass yourself. Don't put yourself through that. That's well, the best advice I can give somebody. That is awesome advice, and I think it also affects the other side of the coin, which is, I think they had it in the movie Fame, but I saw it a million times doing stand-up. A guy goes out his first night, brings all of his friends in, and he's the funniest guy in the world oh, because yeah. they're all cracking up because they're his friends. Right. And then, you know, that that's also another fake kind of bolstering yourself sure. that's going to lead you down a, a path of, I don't really know whether these jokes truly work because yeah. I haven't tried them out on people that don't care if they do or not. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it gives you a false sense of security. And then the second time when you go to do comedy and everybody is a stranger, you're like, what the hell happened? You're, you're knocked on your ass when you're not getting laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now your new album, the unintentionally white album just released a couple weeks ago. How do you view your albums in relation to your standup? Are they collections of things that you're, you've said, okay, this is a body of work now that I can put out there because yeah. I've moved on to new material in my standup or how does that relate to the way you market yourself as a standup comedian in clubs? The first album was that the first album showing the horses whose boss uh, came out in I think 2010 or 2011, um, which basically that one was, um, I had started to headline. So it was the, you know, 50 minutes that I was doing on stage as a closer, but it was 50 minutes of bits and chunks that maybe five, six minutes long each or, or whatever. But 
they were the best stuff that I had written in my first 10 years. There wasn't a, you know, and then this album, which, which took me about three years to write, um, which is a process of pulling old material out and replacing it with new and, and that, um, this album is, is, is more, has more of a through line, more of a theme to it. You can hear my voice as a comic more because I've matured and it's, I, I still stand behind showing the horses who's boss. I think it's a very funny album and I'm very proud of it. Um, I think the second one is better because it, it's more theatrical. It, it has more of a voice and more of a character throughout and one bit flows more into the next. Um, and, and so that's what I'm, I'm hoping that my next album after this, you know, and hopefully comes out in two, three years is better than this one because I keep growing. And so, um, I'm now in the process of trying to come up with my next five or six minutes. And, and from there, the next hour comes, but I don't know, you know, I have to really dig deep and think what, where am I personally? Where am I socially? Where am I politically? Where am I falling on the map? What are my opinions? What are my feelings on what's going on in the world and in my personal life? And how do I bring that to the stage? And, you know, um, that's where the next album will come from. It won't be just a collection of different bits that I've done. It will be, here's this guy, here's what he thinks about himself, his family, and the world around him in that time. It'll be more of a time capsule. So um, I'm, I'm, like I said, very proud of the first one. Uh, I'm wildly proud and excited about this second album. Um, I think it's a definite step forward for me. And... Um, and, you know, as, I'm of the opinion with Stamp, as long as you keep doing it and you keep practicing it, it's one of those things where you just keep getting better and you don't, there's no age limit on it. I can keep working and keep getting better and into my 80s if I'm lucky enough to live that long, you know. Uh, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm at the age where professional athletes are now retiring. Well, I'm just coming into my stride now, so mm -hmm. I'm excited about it. Well, uh, the unintentionally white albums on iTunes, nine ninety nine. That's like the cost of a burger, and yeah. it, it'll last forever. You can laugh at it forever, which I think we'd all agree you do not want to do with the burger. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> now you play a lot of clubs. What can we do about the lack of creativity in the names of comedy clubs? You know, it's just like take the word comedy and throw it in front of a noun: comedy dungeon, the comedy outhouse, the comedy. Hospice, Yuck, the the ha ha hut, the giggle pit, that kind of stuff. Laugh yeah, tracks. The comedy clubs. It's it's. I don't think we can do anything. I think it's, now it's a tradition. I think you have to generally have a an awful name for a comedy club. <laughs> well, there, you know, there are yeah, uh, there there are some decently named clubs. New York City is pretty good about that. We don't have a lot of terribly named comedy clubs. I mean, we have you know, Carolines and stand up New York and the New York comedy club and Broadway comedy club and the comedy cellar and Gotham and all this stuff there. We don't really in New York have any, you know, giggle holes or anything like that, <laughs> but they're, they're certainly, they are still out there. And it's, it's hard when, you know, when people to, you know, when you tell them you're a comic or whatever and they're impressed and then they're like, Oh, well, where are you playing next? Well, now I'll be next week. I'll, 
I'll be at Uncle Uncle Chuckles or something yeah, like that. It yeah, yeah. Sound like you're a you know perfect. You know, it drops you right back down to you're you're a clown doing child's parties. Yeah. Well, I I was doing it when the caravans, because the clubs really hadn't opened, say west of the Mississippi. Yeah. And uh, or west of the edge of the border of New York, and uh, uh, Chicago had quite a few. But the I guess the point of it is. The club that I played most frequently was Comedy Night at the Sheridan. Yeah. It wasn't even a comedy club. So, I mean, right. you know. Um, now, being a New York comedian of note, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you might have had a brush or two uh, with Greg Giraldo. Can, yeah, absolutely. Can you talk about him a little bit? Because I just think uh, we lost somebody amazing there, and, and like kind of like Bill Hicks. We just got to keep that alive by bringing them up. Uh, there's so many guys I know that love George Carlin or that love a Richard Pryor. They've never even heard of Greg Giraldo simply because they don't watch Comedy Central or they don't mm-hmm. kind of keep in touch uh, with you know the top comedians anymore. And yeah. uh, can you talk about Greg a little bit? Yeah, I knew Greg. I didn't know him well. He was, you know, uh, obviously years ahead of me in, you know, in our respective classes. Uh, but he was, he was definitely one of those guys when I was talking about working at stand up New York and watching guys come in night after night and work on their craft. And what I learned, he was one of those pr- practitioners of that. He was a guy who would come in night after night. And that's when I knew him. Um, and, and, and work on a bit and, and take an idea and and go up and just riff on it and talk on it and then the next night you'll see that he took what was funny from the night before and 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 pulled out a lot of the stuff that wasn't and kept getting it tighter so he's definitely for writing uh and 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 everything is definitely somebody who's um who was an influence on me big time he was a nice guy uh you know I, I just you know sadly had had addiction issues and and uh and struggled with with that for his entire life, and ended up, you know, sadly losing that battle. Um, was a was you know, when you're talking comedy, he was one of those examples of just a great comic, an all around great comic, a great writer who wrote the kind of comedy that I like, which is smart, which has an opinion, which has a point of view, which is you know just just really wonderful he was um you know i wish i had had more interaction with him and with patrice o'neill and with a couple of other guys who i would watch i also i watched a lot of these guys and some of them i hung out with a little bit and others i just kind of kept a reverential distance from it's like i was learning and studying from them and i didn't think i was on anywhere near their level so even if they were sitting at the bar at stand up new york um, I wouldn't necessarily go up and, you know, try to talk, start a conversation about the Yankees or something. I was like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave them be. So I watched him and I watched Patrice from a distance quite a bit and, and, and gained a great appreciation. So, um, yeah, if you're, if you're, a, a, a young comic and, and studying and wanting to learn how to do it, uh, you'd be well served to go on YouTube or Google and look up Greg Giraldo and watch some of his stuff and see how he did it. There's about an hour long compilation just of all of his roast material Uh from comedy central. Let's just pop that in and, and, you know, kick back and enjoy. Well, he was a tremendously funny person and a tremendously talented writer. And he was also wildly 
intelligent. I mean, he was Harvard educated lawyer who quit law to do comedy. So he he brought to comedy writing the discipline that one needs to graduate Harvard, you know, right. to um in that work ethic to to do it. So and, and that, really informed everything just really smart comedy. Um yeah. Well, now it's time for the lightning round. These are okay. they're very quick questions that you sh some of these you may have answered. Okay. Uh, here we go. Well, what was your first car? A 1987 Chevy Beretta. That is correct. Uh, <laughs> the first record, comedy record, you ever bought with your own money. Oh, wow. That's a tough one because we used to we used to. Um, pass around like the pirated audio tapes me and my classmates and stuff so there was a lot of carlin and stuff i think the first one i ever bought with my own money probably was a i think it was a rodney dangerfield album i think i don't remember which one i think there was one maybe it was called i don't get no respect i'm gonna have to say that dangerfield i would imagine there was one called that and that the is first comedian i paid to see was jerry seinfeld when i was 12 he's the first one i paid to see in concert with my own money that is correct. <laughs> what is the funniest thing you've ever heard or said in bed? In bed? Funniest thing I've ever heard or said in bed. Uh, I remember my, well, my wife, because she has, you know, a, a real job and a real life, and I work as a comic and I keep night hours and stuff. She would have a habit of waking me up or talking to me in the mornings before she would go to work or wanting to cuddle up on me and I'd only been asleep for like two hours and um, I remember once she was she was waking me up or, or bothering me in some way and I I didn't wake up fully and I kind of get off and she said uh, she said I'm just trying to love you and I says go love me from the other room I remember that one <laughs> I was and her telling me later and me laughing at it and being like, well, that's why you don't bother a comedian when he's sleeping because we have one chambered right yeah. here. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> um, a major Las Vegas casino creates a drink called the Kevin Bartini. What's in the drink? Well, all I can tell you that there's there, there's the Kevin Bartini martini, actually. Okay. It's, it's uh, Sky Vodka. It's got... Um, um, ba, 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 what's this stuff called? Oh, because I'm, I'm Italian, it's got Sambuca in it. So it's vodka and Sambuca. So it's got a licorice flavor. And then around the rim, um, is it, I want to say creme de cocoa around it. You know, you run it around the rim so then it just drips down in. You're talking, you're talking about the rim of the glass. Yeah, like around okay. the edge, you know, so then it drips down and it makes it look kind of cool and then it settles in the bottom and you have a two layer, there's a dark layer and then there's the clear layer on top. I think that's what it what it was. I, I haven't had one in a while, um, but I'm pretty sure it was creme de coco that they added. That... Maybe it was Kahlua. No, it was Kahlua. I think it was Kahlua around. And it actually, you know, the, the, the Kahlua and the, the licorice flavor – Go, to, go together pretty well. So that's the Kevin Bartini martini. That is correct. Uh, when they make the Kevin Bartini story into a major motion picture, uh, who other than yourself will play you? Oh, Jesus. Who would play me? Uh, ha! I have no... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he's not born yet. I'm hoping this my story isn't written for many, many years. Uh... Unidentif wow. un unidentified yeah, spermatozoa is correct. 
Yeah, well, it's tough because also I don't I don't keep on top of who the young actors in Hollywood are to extent. So I'm thinking I think there's a little brown haired kid on the Modern Family. So I don't know his name though. So he would probably probably be an odds on favorite. Yes, I, I don't know. That is correct. Uh, let's see. You already answered that one. Um, do you prefer to hold the mic or have it on a mic stand? I prefer when I'm doing stand up a mic stand. But uh, audience warm-up, I'm holding it. That is correct. What unknown skill or talent do you possess that would amaze most people? Uh, I'm, I'm actually a very good uh, cook. My backup was um, when I was in high school and stuff, I always worked in, um, in restaurants. And I worked in, in very – and I would work in gourmet, really good restaurants. And I started out as a – as a um, dishwasher when I was like 13, 14, but I would, I was bored with that and, and it wasn't stimulating and challenging. So I would wash the dishes as quickly as I could so that I could go down and pitch in somewhere in the kitchen. And I always figured if comedy didn't work out, I could work as a cook. So, um, I, I, I'm, I'm quite an excellent cook. That is correct. Uh, and the perfect score in the lightning round. Well done. Beautiful. Uh, where do you see your career going? I mean, where would you like it to go? Where Where do you want it to go? Uh, well, I want to transition to working in front of the camera more. Um, I want I want to it, it, the the person whose whose career I would like to have is Larry Miller. Um, and he's, he's got a great mix of, he still goes out and he does stand up. And when he does, he does it at a theater somewhere. He's got a successful podcast. He pops up in, as a character actor in movies and television. He can write, he can do whatever he wants to do. Um, I don't need to be Jerry Seinfeld and I don't need to be, uh, the, you know, uh, I don't need to transition into being, a, a, the big movie star or something like that. I, as long as I can make a comfortable living, um, have the freedom to do artistically what I, what I want to do, um, that's where I would like to be. So the, the ultimate goal of that would be Larry Miller, I think. I, I really I really respect what he does. He's incredible. Isn't he? He's Absolutely great. incredible. The um, aristocrats... Mm-hmm. Uh, the the joke that he tells about the piece of pie, yeah, is I mean He's just awesome. just just so masterful. Um, you know, speaking of aristocrats, since you since you've heard my album, the the closing track on my album, um, Pumpkin Fucker, that is my aristocrats. I saw that mo- aristocrats in the theater, and I left that night, and I started to write my own. I didn't want to do exactly the aristocrats, but I wanted to create a bit how outrageous. How I, you know, a situation and keep adding it. And, and by the end of that summer, it was like 18 minutes. And then I've trimmed it down to like the six or seven. But that is my aristocrats joke. And I closed this album coincidentally with it. Well, the album is the uh, unintentionally white album and you can get it on iTunes. What's the best way for people to keep track of you and what you're doing and uh, when you're coming to their town? Best thing. Well, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kevin Bartini. Um, but the best thing you can do is just go to kevinbartini.com. It's your one-stop shop. You can find the link to my Twitter and the link to my albums. There's a, my calendar is on there. Uh, there's also, you can join the mailing list. So I'll let you know when I'm coming to your town and there's 
there's a bunch of videos. There's, you know, sketches and short films I've done and, and stand up. And I think we've got like the speech I did at George Carlin day is there. And that, yeah. that's the easiest thing. Just go kevinbartini.com and, and you can, you can, you can while away an hour or so playing around on that site. Well, hey, thanks a lot for spending the time with us. Best of, best of continued success, and uh, give us a scream if we can ever do anything for you. Well, Tom, thanks for having me on, man. I, I really appreciate it, and I would, uh, uh, yeah, let's keep in touch. I'd love to do your show again sometime. This was a good time. Cool. The interview part's over. Um, you coming, awesome. to, coming to Dallas anytime soon? I, I hope so. I don't have anything in the books. It's Now, this is tough um, because of Full-time gig, yeah. Though. My my traveling on and doing the road uh, is going to be limited. Some call you fat, some call you corpulent, others call you portly. I call you a customer and a friend for life. Come on in to Victor Newsies. If you got a fat ass, I ain't gonna say nothing about it. We'll suit you, you'll suit us. You come into Victor Newsies, I guarantee you're gonna leave with a suit. Come on in, you'll save a ton at Victor Newsies. Bullshitting. Victor Highway 5 out by the mall. We'd like to thank Kevin Bartini for any courtesy laughs he may have issued throughout the program. Uh, we need them. And you need to get his new album, The Unintentional White Album, by going to iTunes or better still, go to KevinBartini.com right away. I don't think he's the kind of guy that gives the cur- No, he might give a courtesy laugh just to. I don't know. It's it's jury's still out on that. Uh, folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here. Uh, you know, I'm starting to get a lot of email about this part of the show, and I have no idea why. Um, I've started to just kind of talk during the ending because nobody listens to it anymore well got it you know when i had the standard ending and people would hear it and then they would just quit listening to it because they'd heard it before and that's the end of the show there was really not i mean i couldn't even in good conscience look at those people and say why are you doing that because it's like well yeah you do know it's the end of the show so why would you uh so i started doing it and i'm getting lots of mail email uh and uh, mostly positive although I get lots. We talked about hecklers. I get so much internet hatred. You, you guys would not believe the amount of internet hatred that I get. It is, it's kind of staggering. Um, we just did the Dave Herman show like an episode ago. And there are so many guys named Harvey Fartknocker 
or jack me off that are they they make a page like a like a page for a person and then they post one time and close it and run away and stuff i mean it's just there's a lot of internet hatred uh directed at me daily and i think maybe this part of the show if I had my browser open right now, I'd just go to my Facebook page and start naming these people. Maybe I'll talk about them. Maybe this is the part of the show that I'll always end because it's every week, man. There's another five total trolls. Um, we'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully show, not me, but the show on Facebook too, if the mood strikes you. And of course, there's always the Tom Gully show.com. That's where you can find out everything about the show. There's, the Tom Gully Show store, uh, filled with top quality name brand merchandise that just happens to have my logo on it, and uh, just the value and quality, or they just seep through the internet when you're looking at that stuff. Uh, and we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free because if it's free, it's for me. Always go to the web version of our page. Don't go to the mobile version. You know, if you got your phone, at the bottom it'll say see web version. Go there and then subscribe by email. That's the best way to do it. But the uh, web version's just, number one, much cooler. And number two, has more stuff uh, on it. So do what we ask, please, because we're begging you. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka too, so I can increase my clout and cred ratings. Because if I get enough points, we're all going to go to the aces. You, me, and Reg Dunlop. I do not know if Ogie will be there. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people. I'll, hey, you know what? I got to talk just briefly uh, to uh, yesterday at the uh, Collegiate Gridiron Showcase Bowl Game Media Day. It's kind of a cool uh, bowl game. What it is is athletes from every single division of college football that are invited to this bowl game. It's kind of a combine for the NFL past the bowl game season. So these are guys that are trying to get a look. And uh, we were out there, and guess who showed up? I'm out there with the great Dave Michaels of the North Texas Sports Network and uh, did not expect to be on the air, but ended up being on the air. And who's there but the amazing, the hilarious, the just a great dude, Andre Girard, the five-time Pro Bowl center of the Cowboys. Uh, Dave used to have a show with him, and I'd show up there once in a while. It was just great to see him and Dave together. And uh, I don't know, maybe Dave's going to put the band back together. Just maybe. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. Shout out to Andre Girard. By the way, go to Andre Girard's Center of Attention. It's his uh, foundation that does hugely good work. And they have, uh, this is the coolest fundraiser in history. They have a kickball game. And uh, yeah, NFL players and celebrity and all these people are playing kickball for charity. It's awesome. Uh, that'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson, the great Jay Johnson. Go to jjohnsonmusic.com. He brings us in with the Truth Wagon and uh, just an incredible singer-songwriter. And each night, we take you out 
with the Catch-22 Blues by Russell Alexander and the Hitman Blues Band. Uh, those guys are working on some new stuff and uh, freshening up some old stuff with some horns, and they are my favorite blues band. So go to hitmanbluesband.net or hitmanbluesband.com. If you go to the .net address, you can get nine. I don't know why I keep trying to say seven. I think it's because lucky seven. You're lucky to get these, but not seven, not eight, but nine free blues songs from the Hitman Blues Band. All you got to do is sign up for their newsletter. And believe me, this newsletter, it's not one of those like LinkedIn or something where they hit you each day with a new doodad or widget. No, it's like once a month, maybe. And uh, nine, nine delicious blues songs from those folks. So we will see you next time. Can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat, a raccoon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night while you hold your baby tight, but he don't want you. You can see it in his eyes from the way he tells you lies. He don't want you.